Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The ProNoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the P3 Podcast. Very, very different guest today, and I'm really excited about it because I know this person personally. Today's guest is going to be in sort of esteemed company in season two of the P3 Podcast. We've got world champions, we've got Olympic champions, we've got business executives and business owners and managing directors and all sorts of people. And now we've got little old Lisa Upton. And the reason I'm saying that, Lisa, because I know you, I know how modest you are and the story you've got to tell is so amazing that you're probably sick of telling it. But your story, mate, is probably the most powerful one of this whole series, I think. And that's the reason why I was playing about my words a little bit there, <laughs> because the impact you have and the positive impact you have on so many people is something to behold, really. So before we go into the core content, Lisa Upton, welcome to the P3 podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. I think the bit that got me the most was when you said old. I mean, I'm early 40s. I don't think I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just a phrase, a turn of words rather than a, uh, a literal one. But for little old Lisa, we, we start the <laughs> that's better. I'll take that. <laughs> now, Lisa, I think, you know, a lot of people listening to the podcast won't know your story. And the way I want to play it back to you really is the fact that it's like when you tell a story, sometimes to yourself, that the story loses its impact, as I touched on earlier. And I think it's the same for you. And we've been in classrooms and presentation halls together and you sometimes get sick of telling your own story, but mm. the positivity that comes out of it and the remarkableness of it, if that's a new word I think I just created, it is incredible. So tell us a little bit about it. So I'm going to give a really big picture of what I know and then just fill yeah. in the blanks and give us a bit more detail. So the really defining moment is obviously discovering you had a brain tumor. You fought really hard to find a consultant that was willing to operate. All the advice was saying, don't operate because of the risks versus rewards are not worth it. And you just went with your gut instinct and went, no, this is the right thing to do. And then through the beauty of your intuition and science with the senior consultants and the surgeons you worked with, the operation was clearly successful because obviously we're having a great conversation today. But I think the bits in between those big bits there that I shared are so, so important. So can you shed a little bit more light on that? So, you know, how did you get to the operating theatre? What was the decisions you had to make? What was it like for your family and friends? And also the recovery after? Oh, God, you're right. I'm sick of telling this story, but let's do it. Let's do it. So I think it's probably good to kind of just let your listeners know that I was diagnosed with epilepsy when I was like 14 years old. And they were able to tell me why I had epilepsy. They told me I had something called a cavernoma in my brain which is essentially like a benign brain tumour. So that was kind of what I was presented with when I was 14. I was told they would never be able to remove it or get it out, but there was a massive likelihood that it could one day bleed and kill me. So at 14 years old, I think being told something like that, looking back, it was an age where I wasn't scared, you know. It was just like, okay, I'm kind of going to get on with my life. I'm going to do the best I can with what I've got and we'll see where this goes. And obviously that evolved as time went on. I was having daily seizures, not the fall to the ground grand mal seizures, but little seizures where I would start dribbling and wouldn't be able to talk for periods of time. But I kind of just got used to that. It was part of my life and I accepted what it was. And that continued right through my 20s, early 30s. Um, and I would see various consultants to see what the kind of latest state of play was with it. Is it going to bleed? Is it going to burst? And the answer was always the same. We don't know, Lisa. But from what you're telling us, your epilepsy is getting worse. So there's a chance that that could kill you. So that was really challenging to sort of accept, I guess, uncertainty. There was so much uncertainty around it. But as I say, the message was always the same. We're never going to be able to get it out. So you're going to have to just live with the uncertainty. 
And then one day in 2015, I remember it very, very clearly. I went down to London for my annual review with my neurologist at the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery, where I'd found a great neurologist who I really sort of resonated with and who made me feel very safe. And I remember walking in and he said, like, he wasn't a very excitable guy normally, but this day he was. And he was like, do you know what, Lisa, I think it's time. And I was like, what are you on about, Matthew? Time for what? Because I reckon we can get it out. I reckon we can get that tumour out. And I was like, whoa, you can imagine, right? I'm on my own. I didn't okay. take my husband with me, my mum or anyone, because I thought they were just going to say, yeah, carry on taking your meds, take your chances, you'll be okay, hopefully. But no, it was a very different message. So I said, listen, Matthew, are you sure you can get this out? He said, well, look, I'm not a neurosurgeon, but, you know, my contacts, I've spoken with them, we've reviewed your case, and we absolutely think we can get this out. And, you know, when you've fed some news that you're just not expecting, obviously I had to reflect on that and go back and tell my family that I'd been presented with this opportunity with, I guess, at that point, very little knowledge of what the impact would be of the operation. So the next stage and process in that was going to see the surgeon to understand what those risks were. And that was a very different story. So through all of Matthew's positivity and hope around having the surgery, the surgeon that I first saw was very much a realist. He said, listen, I can get anything out of your brain, out of anyone's brain, but it's at what cost? And I'm going to tell you now, you're going to have to learn to talk again. You're going to have to learn to read and write again. And there's a massive chance that you're probably going to have a stroke and die. He said, I'll do it, but you've got more to lose than you've got to gain. He said, if it was me, I wouldn't do it. Prior to that, I'd seen seven neurologists who all refused to do it. So this was kind of the guy I'd pinned all my hopes on. And I suppose some people might say, why did you keep going and seeing so many neurologists? And to your point that you mentioned earlier, Phil, there was something that I felt was telling me that I needed to do this operation. My family, my friends thought I was crazy. My husband thought I was crazy. But I just felt inherently like it was the right thing to do. People ask me this question all the time and I struggle all the time to articulate it. But the only way I can explain it is, you know, like your fridge, the hum of your fridge. When you focus in on it, it gets louder, right? When you don't, you can't hear it at all. This was like a constant feeling rather than a sound, but a feeling that was always there. And when I focused in, it just got louder, louder, louder. That was ultimately the reason why I decided to go ahead because of this mental feeling I had. Because you saw the opportunity and obviously the news that you were expecting, so there was a chance of making it much better for you. Did it become sort of like a psychological obsession then? Is that what you mean as well by the hum? It was constantly thinking, everything just nudging away of you that I have to pursue this. There's something I have to do with it. And I don't know where it's going or what's going to happen, but I need to pursue it. I need to be proactive here. Yeah, I think maybe and there was an element of that. I think there was a bigger part of me that had learned to accept the uncertainty of not knowing. And I don't think I was desperate to have the certainty. It was just a nice add-on. It was honestly something magical, which I've never experienced before, but something was driving me forward to just keep on pursuing it. And every time I did pursue it, I'd get like another barrier of someone going, it's just a ridiculous decision. It makes no sense, but I'd still keep going. And I've never had that or experienced anything like that in my life. It was like wizardry. It was like someone else was almost like the puppeteer and kept on pushing me forward, but it wasn't anyone else. It was me. There was probably psychology in that, but I believe there was something bigger in that. And I'm not a religious person for that all. Mm. I'd like to think I'm quite spiritual, but I do believe now a hundred percent more than anything in the power of our intuition and our power of knowing. 
Yeah, and I think that's something we'll sort of elaborate on later on because you're saying it was five years ago. And I think your path over the last five years has been based on your intuition in terms of where you are now and what you're doing, isn't it? Which we'll sort of touch on later on. So take me back to the conversations you're having with your family. So obviously you found a surgeon that wasn't 100% sure what the results are, but he's willing to do it. So therefore he was obviously confident in his ability, just unsure what the outcome was going to be. Talk to us a little bit more about how you got to the decision as a family that it was going to happen, you know, managing the risks and then dealing with the aftermath of the operation. Okay. Yeah. So as I said, there was no guarantees that it was going to be okay. His very clear message to me was always, you've got more to lose than you've got to gain. We can get it out, but there's going to be some work after that. So 100% I was going to have to learn to talk and read and write again. And I accepted that. And my family were kind of Mm, they were all right with that. Bearing in mind, I had kids. My kids were four at the time. So it wasn't a particularly great time for me to have to learn to read and write again. But actually, it turned out great because I learned with them and we'll come on to that. So they were okay with that stuff. They were just not so good with the 50% chance of having a hemorrhage and a 25% chance of dying, which I don't think anyone's family would be, right? <laughs> so they loved me and they wanted the best for me. My mum in particular hated seeing me take the mammoth amounts of medication I was taking. My husband hated seeing me having seizures, but they felt it was somehow better than taking this chance. But they loved me enough to accept that this was my decision and something I had to do. It was the hardest decision I've ever made. It was really the hardest decision I've ever made. And I prepared for the worst. I did. I wrote letters to my husband, to my kids, to my mum, to my closest friends, assuming that I wouldn't make it. Yeah, incredible. And I can imagine, you know, the first day you were at the operating theatre going down for the operation and I bet that was a nervy day. When I ever need a little bit of strength in my life now, I often think back to that morning because I don't know where I got it from, but there was just an amazing amount of strength that I just had within me that got me through that. I remember Mr. McAvoy coming in, he was my surgeon and he said, listen, this is your last chance, Lisa. The door is there. You can go if you want to. And I just looked at him and said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to do this. You know what they call it? The casino of neurosurgery. That was kind of like the inside word for it. My family were just so scared. It's just really hard to, you know, understand what you were going through that. So give us a bit more information then, if you don't mind. How long was the operation? How long was it till you could see your family? And what was the immediate feedback once you'd come out of the theatre? They said it'd probably take about 10 hours. So I was wheeled down at about seven in the morning. I remember speaking to the anaesthetist who taught me through the process. He said, listen, we're going to put you to sleep for the worst bit, which is essentially where they do the craniotomy. So they take part of your skull off. And then he said, we're going to wake you up because you're going to need to be wide awake for this operation. You're going to need to be focused and alert. We're going to ask you to do some sums. And all I could think about, Phil, was that Hannibal Lecter film, you know, when he, you know, they... Yeah, so preparing to be woken up during brain surgery was something I kind of tried my very best to prepare for beforehand, but I don't think you can because there's not many people been through it that can tell you what it's going to be like, but surreal doesn't even do it justice. I mean... I woke up and I think I thought I was going to be drowsy and not really with it and not knowing what was going on. But I was awake, like I was wide awake, head in a clamp. I could see everything. I could hear everything. The room was full of people because they were filming it. I had about 50 people in there. And I had this wonderful lady with me, my speech therapist, who was sort of navigating the way around an iPad, asking me to repeat words and do sums and et cetera. So there wasn't a lot of time for me to be scared during that process, if I'm honest, because like all the eyes were on me and I was having to do these mad tasks and stuff. So I didn't really think about it in that moment. Was it a moment though, but obviously you woke up and you know, I'm guessing you're still on the operating table and they're like, what, we finished? 
you know, it's about recovery time. Now, was there a moment you're like, is that it? Not in, is that all it is? But, you know, I'm still here and I'm functioning. Was it a moment of, well, well. Yeah, I remember at the end they said to me, look, we're done. We've got it out. Your choice now, we can either put you back to sleep, have a bit of rest or you can stay awake and we'll just stitch you up. I just remember being starving hungry. I said, listen, I've come this far. Keep me awake, but please give me something to eat. And they were like, oh, we shouldn't really. But they gave me an apple. So I'm there munching on an apple while they're like putting my skull back on. And it, it, I mean, I don't have a picture of that. I bloody wished I did. <laughs> but um, yeah, there was a lot of relief, a lot of relief. Yeah, it puts a new sort of angle at the five a day. Yeah. The doctor away. I said, you've got 50 surgeons and doctors and trainee surgeons stood all around you. Oh, that paints out of a picture. So, you know, I did you a misjustice when I said I'll give the big picture synopsis of what happened because I forgot to say that actually, yeah, you're in a brain operation and I'm a tumour removed while being conscious for the majority of it. <laughs> And to be fair, I'm sure you've seen this about, I think it was last summer, there was an operation with somebody out in Austria and they were playing the violin. Yeah. And it was about obviously just making sure that they have the full functionality of the brain because obviously it's habitual once they've learned the skills, it's complete subconscious sort of behavior really that that's how things have evolved, haven't they? You know, in terms of where they're going now, they want to scan the brain and make sure that they can keep as many of those synapses firing as best they can. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the technology they've got is incredible and the stuff they can do now is come on. Well, clearly, you know, this was an operation that in their minds would never be able to be done, but this is how far we've come. So, yeah. Amazing. So you finished your apple. Uh, finished my apple, yeah. It tasted <laughs> like the sweetest apple I've ever tasted. Yeah. I can imagine. So they wheel you out to recovery room and how long till you get to see your family in there? So straight down to sort of ICU and they said to me, the operation has gone really, really well. We've managed to get it all out. Your speech seems okay. And it did. I was talking pretty reasonably well. They let my family come down and you can imagine sort of the relief on their faces and lots of tears, lots of hugs and stuff like that. I was very, very tired. So they let me get some rest in ICU. I remember they wheeled me up to the ward the next morning where I was going to be staying. And it was at that moment that my speech started to go. So I went from being able to articulate myself very, very clearly to kind of sounding like I was completely pissed, for want of a better <laughs> word. And then it got progressively worse over the next 48 hours and I just couldn't talk properly uh... at all. Was that frightening, frustrating? And... Do you know what? It wasn't frightening because I knew everything that I wanted to say in my head. I hadn't lost the knowing of words. It was yeah. just they weren't coming out in an order that I was wanting them to. So everything was there. But yeah, it just wasn't coming out. So it was more of a physiological thing rather than a mental thing, I think. So that's probably what made me not so scared. So how did your family respond to that, though? Because obviously you'd been told to expect it. This may happen for a period of time. But then for your family to see it as well, was it, mm. is it one of those things where it's harder for them than you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really hard to communicate with them. They kept on saying, you okay, you okay? And I couldn't even say yes, you know. So I found a whole new way of communicating through emojis. Like anyone that knows me now know that I love an emoji. I use them all the time. <laughs> so I spent like a week or two thumbs up, high five emojis. Yeah, it was really hard for them, probably much harder for them than it was for me, I think. I was really optimistic and I was really positive that I would be able to learn to write again and read and just have clear vocabulary. And they kept reassuring me, the doctors and the surgeons, but they did say it would take some time and it did. It did take some time. So in terms of time, how long was the recovery then? So in terms of where you got back to a place where you were happy and content in terms of your functionality? I would say nine months it took. I was in hospital for seven days, which wasn't that long, really. And then I went to stay with my mom, who lives in a beautiful country house. And I stayed there for about six, seven weeks. And yeah, I just had simple spelling lessons and I had speech therapy every day. 
and it was a process that took it, I would say, in whole nine months. Yeah, incredible. And then, you know, I'm guessing in terms of time frame, only looking at what, four years ago? Mm, yeah, and it, yeah. Wasn't, it wasn't that long after that I met you for the first time, which of course to mm. show how recent it was. Does it feel like a long, long time ago? I mean, you're looking at, we're early 2021 now, so we're still in the midst of COVID, you know, for those that are listening at some point in the future. And this has been like the longest year ever, hasn't it? But at the same mm. time, things have gone really quick. So how do you sort of look back at it? Do you think it was like another lifetime ago? Yeah, for sure. It completely feels like it was another lifetime ago. I think the person I was before that operation, and I think as well as part of the recovery I was just a different person. I feel like I've learned so much since then and gained so much insight into myself and other things. It, yeah. Oh God, it just feels like forever, Phil. It really does. <laughs> so you sort of touched on a few bits there in terms of, you know, you're a different person. So what types of change do you think from then to now? I think the biggest change was that as soon as I came out of that operation, I just wanted to live my life at the crazy speed of doing things and not holding back. And I think everyone that's been through any serious illness or operation feels that. I think that's a natural thing to feel. But having my speech taken away from me and my words and my communication, communication to me is so, so important now. And I don't think it ever used to be. It was, you know, important, of course, but clear, authentic conversation and communication with the people I love and not just the people I love with everyone is the real value of mine. And learning new words, like I'm a complete wordsmith. I know words now that I didn't know before. I'll tell you what was really interesting. Every time I heard a word after the operation, it would be like I'd heard it for the first time which was such a weird feeling. I remember mum took me out one day. She goes, oh, we're going to go to M&S. I go, what's M&S? She goes, you know, like Marks and Spencers. And I remember just going, oh my God, this is so weird. Like <laughs> learning all these words again. So yeah, I was like that every time I heard a word. I was like a kid at school. So I think I've acquired a newly found thirst for knowledge and learning, which is still with me today. Yeah, again, that touches on how we met in terms of the field of education, isn't it? And trying to do the best for yourself. And I think that leads us on to, you know, this huge experience you've had and the evolution of your own journey and the ability and what you've done in terms of taking that learning, solidifying it, and then wanting to share that with other people. Because mm. I see a lot of people, as you know, I do a lot of presentations and speaking, and I see a lot of people do motivational talks, you know, in terms of this is my story gain motivation from it or this is my story my adventure and here's my top three tips where you've gone a lot lot further than that in terms of this is my journey this is what happened these are the fundamentals of it i didn't know what it was at the time but what we've gone away and researched it and we've put it together as a package so can you explain what those key learning points were in the journey from the research with the universities and what that foundations and those fundamentals of your packages are? Yeah. So I suppose let's go back a bit. So after the operation, I was posed with the question, do you want to help us, Lisa? Do you want to take part in a study where we as neurologists and neurosurgeons and researchers can learn more about the human brain and how people can maintain positive mental health? And I was a bit like, I never even thought about the answer. I was like, yeah, of course, sign me up. I'll do whatever you need me to do. And that involved taking part in lots and lots of different experiments, taking various vitamins, gosh, doing all sorts of things, but with the fundamental purpose to help other people maintain and improve their mental health. So, oh God, it's such a complex story to try and explain in a simple way, but I'll do my best. So I was involved with the program for three years. I'm still kind of involved a little bit now. And through that three-year period, obviously I was recovering, but also I was learning and helping and gifting my brain to science. 
And what we found was, and this is kind of findings from such a massive and monumental body of research of that time, was that there are three main factors around maintaining good mental health. And one of those is if we find and understand the ability of how to live more consciously, which is massive in itself. The second one is if we understand that actually our brains are a little bit unaligned now. When we were back running around on the savannas of Africa many years ago, we had equilibrium. We had a really strong left side of our brain, but also a really strong right side of our brain. And I think through the course of evolution and societal and cultural demands, we have naturally as human beings become much more left-sided. And so one of the findings through the research and stuff that I took part in is that actually we need to heighten the right side of our brain again and bring that back into kilter. So that's the second one, the elevation of the right hemisphere. And then the third one, and I think the most important one for me is intuition, you know, that level of extrapolating your personal element, who you are, what you stand for, what you believe in and trust in yourself and the decisions that you make. So, yeah, the three fundamental teachings of euphrenity on what I learned from the hospital are conscious living, right hemisphere alignment and intuition. And we can have a good conversation on that, I think, because the first one in terms of conscious living, everybody translates things into their own world, don't they? And for me, that's mm. just being more present, you know, and be consciously aware of what you're doing and where you are. And I can give you an example. And last week, we put quite a bit of an effort with our business into social media. So I sort of set the expectations with my family that I was going to be on the phone quite a lot. That was a conscious decision. So it wasn't that much of a barrier for me. But I can imagine a lot of people do that every night. So that actually it's them and their phones rather than them and the people that are in the room. And this has been going on for donkey's years, haven't it? You know, since we had instant access to any information anytime we want with the mobile phone. So I think being present is really important. But for maybe the listeners that don't quite understand the left and right side of the brain and the hemispheres, can you just elaborate a little bit more on that for us? Yeah. So there's certain cognitive functions that are associated with the different sides of our brain. So the left side of our brain is known as the academic side of our brain. So it's kind of where all the logic is, the sequence. It likes order. It's responsible for the maths, for the science, for the exact equations. It's pretty black and white, you know, it doesn't really like to be creative. It's pretty black and white. So as I said, it's known as the academic side. Some people will really identify with that. If you're the sort of person that likes logic and order and sequence, then you're going to have a very strengthened left side of the brain. And we all need it. Listen, there's not any side that's better than the other. But we live in a world of hierarchy and conformity. And so that naturally heightens the left side of the brain. And then the right side, that's where the magic happens. This is about creativity, being present is one of the biggest things that lives in that right side of our brain. It doesn't care much for order or sequence. It's just all about estimates and guesstimates and that kind of thing. It's where our visualization happens. So when we create pictures in our minds, it's being emanated from the right side of our brain. And it's spontaneous and it doesn't mind taking risks. And I think, I think about the job I was in before my brain surgery, it just strengthened the left side so much. It was a regulated role and I wasn't creative in any way, but I tell you what, Phil, I'm very creative now having tapped into that right side and I understand how massively important it is to have that equilibrium. Yeah. And I think that last word sums it up perfectly. It's about getting that balance again, isn't it? And allowing yourself to get the shackles off that more often than not, we create for ourselves. You know, we create our own rules and boundaries and our own regulations. And actually, you've got to have that sort of critical thinking of, well, actually, is that true? Do I have to do it that way? Can I not do it a different way? And going back to, you know, organizations, you know, I think the organizations that are really sort of fit for purpose and really sort of strengthened their case for the future know that and they tap into it with their staff they engage their staff you know they help them to co-create solutions to issues and problems actually they get them to own the future 
yeah. because it's so powerful when you get that alignment. And I'll go the other side as well. When you explain it that way, when you reflect on, and anybody listening could do this, just reflect on what you've done the last six weeks, the last six months. Have you been creative or have you just been conforming and making more rules and regulations and structure? And if you've had a little bit of imbalance in your life and not felt quite right, it's probably because you haven't utilized both sides of the brain. And it's almost like the other one is quietly in the back of your mind saying, I need some attention. I need some loving because if you don't use me, you're going to lose me. Yeah. I go back to when I was a kid, you know, some of the biggest fun we had was out in the bar garden, you know, loads of wood just thrown down on a saw and a nail and tried to build a shed or skateboard ramp from nothing. We were there for hours. We wouldn't even drink. We wouldn't eat. Completely yeah. engrossed in it. Just so immersified in the moment, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that definitely resonates. And then can you elaborate on the third one as well? So the intuition. Yeah. So there's a lot of research around the vagus nerve now, isn't it? And so which people can go and research in terms of that gut feeling. It's not so much the brain firing signals to the stomach now. It's actually the other way around. You know, in terms of the stomach just holds a lot of memory in there and a lot of intuition, a lot of DNA sort of experience and memories. And it can quickly fire some signals to your brain to say this is right or this isn't right. And it will defy logic more often than not. Of course. Yeah. And I think intuition a lot of the time comes from the energy we feel from other people and certain scenarios or situations that we find ourselves in and that energy doesn't lie you know it's all linked to polyvagal nervous system and some of the stuff you said there so intuitions are really really interesting one when i'm talking to the researchers at the hospital about it because they can't measure it they kind of have no explanation for it it is essentially a little bit of magic and because they're such science-based people they really find that hard to accept but they do and how can i summarize it in a simple sentence it's it's sort of when you arrive at the answer without any logical understanding of how you got there. It's a feeling. It feels right or it doesn't feel right. The way I sort of try and explain that is we were talking not so long ago about what's our top recommendations for people. And I think, you know, having a really close knit support network is really important or if you're on social media now, the buzzwords find your tribe, isn't it? Find mm. people that are on the same wavelength as you. And what I mean by that is if you get a new job or you go to a new, I don't know, social club or whatever it is, you get a gut feeling within the first couple of minutes of walking through the door of whether that's the right place for you. And you're not, mm, not quite sure about the feeling of this year. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on, but something's not quite right. And more often than not, certainly up to 80% is the current scientific statistics. It's just going to be right. But likewise, when you find somebody that you just click with and the mm. gut goes, I don't know what it is with this person, but mm. I want to spend more time with them and I want to speak to them and I want to engage with them because something's telling me that we need to align ourselves and we need to keep in touch. That's how we form friendships, isn't it? And when you haven't engaged with those people that are part of your tribe, you miss it. And I think this is part of the issues we've had over the last 12 months with the social distancing and the ability to travel and the COVID challenges. We had a mental health issue before COVID mm. and people forget that not just burnout and stress, but people were disconnected from nature, from one another, from other human beings and from their families because we were busy on the corporate hamster wheel. I'm really hoping that COVID's been a massive reset for the bulk of the people out there that are going to go, right, this is what I need to do now. I need to connect myself back to the things that are really important to me. Definitely. I really hope so too. And I think having this stillness is something we've not had before because we've been able to busy ourselves and distract ourselves with so many different things. Having this stillness, I think, has been the perfect grounding for people to really tap into their intuition and listen to what it is that they truly want. And I hope people have found that. I really hope they have and not, you know, distracted themselves with the technology that we have. You know, some people say to me, oh, Lisa, well, I don't think I've got intuition. Everyone's got intuition. Of course they've got it. But when we've got so much other stuff going on, like heightened levels of the left side of our brain with all our brain chatter, it's impossible to hear it sometimes. So it is really about sitting in that stillness. And sometimes that's really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. 
But also I want to make the point of saying that intuition as well is sometimes hard to identify because we can sometimes maybe get confused with our ego, wishful thinking, fear, some of those things. But the way to know it's intuition, it will never, ever compromise your values as a person, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I'll just play back what I'm thinking when you were saying that in terms of even if you follow your intuition and it's not the right answer, it will never do anything to sort of embarrass, upset or go against the grain of yourself. So there'll just be a case of didn't quite work out that right, but it does sit well with me why I made that decision. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes, you know, when we follow our intuition, let's say that I had a feeling today to travel to Mallorca. That's not going to happen because I can't go anywhere at the moment. <laughs> um, and, I, and I might trust that decision and travel there. And then I'd build this narrative of the mind of something amazing happening at the other side. But I think we have to stop creating those stories of what might happen and trust intuition. Yeah. Because maybe it was never about the trip to Mallorca. Maybe it was about just going to the airport and meeting that person or doing that. So just accepting it for what it is and not creating our happy ending in the way that we see it. You talked a memory there where we miss so many opportunities because our head's down, you know, our mm. earphones are on, you know, traveling's a great example. And oh, it was a good few years ago now, I was flying out of Birmingham, if I remember, I think I was going to Aberdeen to do some work. And I'd consciously made a decision that morning that I wasn't going to listen to music. I was going to take my earphones out and I was going to pay attention. And I was going to try and start a conversation with people. And it was a bit of a challenge, really, because nobody does it anymore. I remember getting on the train, and the train was taking me straight into the airport, and there was a lady trying to get a suitcase onto the train, and I gave her a hand to get the suitcase up, fairly heavy as well. I said, all oh, right, going anywhere nice. And she looked at me almost like, no, no, you just helped me get it up, and you don't engage with me anymore, you know? And I said, oh, going anywhere nice. I said, I'm off up to Scotland. And we triggered a conversation, and the conversation we started was about, isn't it funny that people find it strange now that we interact with other human beings when you stood two foot away from them? We had a whole conversation about where we connected on LinkedIn and things like that, you know, and I still see a post. I've never seen her since, never spoke to her since. But there was just that little moment of a conversation around basically helping a suitcase out. But I ended up writing a blog about it, actually, because how weird it is that as humans, mm. we take each other's company for granted. That stranger next to you is another human being, is another soul. And again, it's another wish, I think, that moving forward and one of my goals is to ensure that I take every opportunity I can to engage with other people. Because... COVID is another good example. People, you know, going to the supermarket, it's the only time they interact with the human beings, which is a massive mm. need, a massive need of human beings. And not so long ago, I was in the supermarket and somebody in front of me was tapping their foot because they were in a rush to get to the supermarket. And there was an elderly gentleman packing his groceries really slowly. But while he was packing it, he was speaking to the shop assistant and they were chatting away. And the guy was just about to say, will you bloody hurry up with you? Mm. And I sort of whispered over his shoulder from two meters apart, I said, hey, mate, what? I said, that's probably his only social interactions he's getting this week. So just give him a minute. It's all right. And he just looked at me and he went, fair one. Mm. You know, and it's a funny old scenario as human beings. And I think we've got to get back to being more natural and being more human. Yeah, definitely. I think that's it, isn't it? Even with the COVID crisis that's going on, I think in some ways it is dehumanizing us. And, you know, I try every day to try and do things to make up for that and connect with people. And, you know, this is great. Zoom is good. It's not as great as being face to face, but it still serves its purpose and helps us create those connections. I don't know about you, Phil, but I've connected with more people throughout this pandemic than I probably would have if we were in real life. I've made just some really great, strong connections with people that I wouldn't have probably met in normal life. Yeah, yeah, definitely a handful. I think everyone's different. Some people like a massive tribe and have solid relationships and some people like to have a smaller tribe but have really deep, meaningful relationships. I think the balance is you can have both. And I definitely, before COVID, was one that had a handful of people. You're definitely in that, where we would go, right, once a month, even if we didn't meet each other from a work perspective, we'd meet up for coffee, wouldn't we? Mm. Let's go and have a couple of hours together. And yes, we talk about work and stuff like that, but we talk about life in general as well. And I think those connections are so important, but you're absolutely right. 
I don't know about this, and I know I'm probably going off on a tangent a little bit here, but I always see friendship as sort of like a dartboard where the bullseye in the middle of it, you've probably only got a handful of people that got deep, meaningful relationships. And then you've got the little green bullseye outside of that, which may be another handful of people, but they're good mates, but they're not mm. good, good, good mates. And then you've got another huge amount of space there outside the green bullseye, which is the majority of people that you come into contact with that are almost like associated friends. And they're still mates, but they probably wouldn't be first on your list to a party, you know, but they're still good yeah. friends. And then the outer ring of the dartboard is probably the people that you just haven't quite connected with. Mm. You know, I know mm. who they are, but they're probably not in the same wavelength as me, or I might have known from a professional capacity. So they're friends, but I haven't got their phone number, you know, that type of thing, you know. And, and I think what we're talking about there and what you were suggesting is that you've probably got more people in your bullseye because of COVID. So that's a great positive to take away from what's been a really difficult year. Yeah, it has. And I wouldn't necessarily say they're all in my bullseye, but they're definitely sort of around the periphery of that. Yeah. But I think to have just a handful of people in that bullseye, I think we're very lucky if we have that. And I think, you know, those friends are true friends that we deeply, deeply connect with and bring out our true authenticity really can help our intuition as well. Like I can definitely tell you here and now that my best friends, I'm only me because of them. They challenge me, they extrapolate the best of me, they cheerlead me on. And we have to have those people, those supporters around us, because again, that helps us listen to our intuition. It really, really does. Yeah, it does. And it confirms when you're doing the right thing because they agree with it. And you know, best friends will call you out when maybe it's not the best. Exactly. exactly. Or, or, they, or they get you to critically analyze your thinking and your behavior from a different angle because we all have biases. We can always make any story fit, can we? You know, mm. um, but it is really important that good friends do that. I'm conscious of time, Lisa. So what I'd like to do now, if it's okay with you, is to just bring it all together. So you've had an amazing journey, an amazing story. And thanks very much for sharing that with us. So these three core principles, what are you going to do with them? And what have you been doing them over the last couple of years? And what's the plans for the future? Yeah. So what I've kind of found throughout the course of the last four years of this study is that I know a lot about conscious living, about right hemisphere alignment and about intuition, but I don't know it all. So what I've done, again, through connections and following my intuition is I've met a team of incredible people who are able to help me deliver the pillars of Euphrenity, which we've just mentioned, the conscious living, the right hemisphere and the intuition, and people who are experts in those fields. So we've got you, the human performance coach, it's going to really help us out on the conscious living side of things. We've got an incredible psychotherapist by the name of Adam Laidler, who is going to help us understand intuition more. And we've got an incredible woman called Louise Harris, who's going to be a mindfulness and meditation yoga teacher, who's going to help us understand some of that right hemisphere alignment. And so as a team, we're taking all of our different modalities and we've come together to create something called the Reset Code. So this is where we're going to take people on a six day, five night, fully immersive transformational journey. And I know I sound a bit like a woke lord when I say that, and I'm mindful of that. But it is going to be truly transformational, taking all of those different modalities and bringing them together to help people truly understand how they can better improve and maintain their mental health. This journey was never about me at the end of it going, oh my God, I've got the answers. Like, come on my Euphrenity course. This is about collaborating with the best of the best to deliver something that's just truly sensational. I think the title in itself says a lot, you know, the reset code, come and reset because we don't have enough time for that. And we haven't for many, many years. So people are tired, burnt out, stressed, or just looking for that breakaway. The reset code will definitely be for them. But can you paint a little bit more of a picture on the type of things they'll be up to in terms of what would a typical day be? What would be the environment? What type of activities will they be doing over those six days, five nights? Yeah. So this is set in Mallorca in beautiful part of Northwest Mallorca called Dea. 
So it's a really magical place, really, really spiritual. But bigger than that, you've got a lot of the elements exposed. So we're set in the Tramontana mountain range. So there's going to be a lot of psychological theory. It's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be meditation, mindfulness. There's going to be some cold water immersion therapy. There's going to be treks through those beautiful mountains. There's going to be a whole load of healthy eating. There's going to be some art therapy. There's going to be so much, Phil. There's going to be so much. We're going to chuck in there some hypnotherapy, all of the things that we know that work. Like I said before, we've just bought the best of a monumental body of research and evidence of stuff that works. And we've designed it in a way that will bring out the best in people over that period of time. And I suppose if just allow me to use this quote by way of sort of summarizing it, because this really, really encapsulates what the reset code is about. Sometimes the journey isn't so much about becoming anything. It's about unbecoming everything you thought you were in order to be the person you're meant to be. That is what we're going to do on the Reset Code. We are going to reset your body. We're going to reset your mind. You're going to leave that retreat with a greater sense of who you are and what you're meant to do. Well, I'm ready for it. I mean, I can't wait for the restrictions to be lifted and we can start really pinning some dates because we're ready to go, aren't we? We've got everything ready to go, ready to live. Yep. We've got the venue. We just need to make sure that, you know, everybody can travel safely and people will get the max benefit from it. So, Lisa, I've got no doubt that people are going to be super ready for something out there. So if they want to learn more about the Reset Code dates and how they inquire about it, etc., or even if they want to learn a little bit more about yourself, where's the best place for them to go? I think if they visit my website in the first instance, so that's www.euphrenity.com. I'm on all social media platforms, so Insta, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and all of the information about the reset code and some of the other codes as well that we do are on there. So people can find out costings, what exactly is involved in the whole time that they're going to be spending there. And they can also arrange a one-to-one with me by video conference call to learn more if they want to as well. Yeah, great stuff. So what we'll do is we'll put all those links at the bottom of the description of this podcast. So wherever you are listening to it, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, etc., just go back to the description of this podcast and you'll see the links to Lisa's bio for LinkedIn and her website. And get in touch. I'm sure she'll be able to point you in the right direction. So Lisa, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy at the moment. I can tell you now I'm ready for the reset code and I'm sure you are too. Yeah, I think we all are. But thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. No, take care and I'll speak to you soon. We hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the P3 podcast. If you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.